Democrats in the Judiciary Committee hold the Attorney General in contempt, and they declare constitutional crisis. I'm Ben Shapiro, this is The Ben Shapiro Show. Man, for being in the middle of a constitutional crisis, it's kind of a nice day, right? Like, it's okay outside, nobody's killing each other in the streets, doesn't seem a lot of civil war happening. I'm, I'm not hearing the zombie screaming or anything, so pretty, pretty calm, placid constitutional crisis. We'll get to the massive constitutional crisis 2019 in just a second, but first, it's spring. The time of year when seeds grow into flowers and you grow up. Financially, at least your family needs protection if something happens to you. That means you need life insurance. Thankfully, Policy Genius makes it easy to get that financial security without the growing pains. Policy Genius is the easy way to buy life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape as well. No commissions, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind, no strings attached. And Policy Genius doesn't just simplify life insurance, they also do home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance. So the next time you stop to smell the roses, pull out your phone, head on over to policygenius.com. Policy Genius, spring is here. Kick it off by nipping life insurance in the bud. Be a responsible human. Be an adult. You don't want to leave your family bereft and without any source of monetary revenue if you should kick the bucket. So make sure that you go over to Policy Genius right now. Check it out. It only takes a couple of minutes to get competing rates. And then buy yourself some life insurance and make sure your family is taken care of. PolicyGenius.com. Go check it out right now. PolicyGenius.com. Okay, so the big story of the day. The Democrats moving forward with their contempt charges against Attorney General William Barr. Now, one of the problems with this contempt charge is that it's really, really stupid. So as David French, the legal analyst at National Review, pointed out yesterday on our radio show, David French pointed out William Barr originally had no obligation to turn over any of the Mueller report. He decided to turn over virtually all of the Mueller report. In fact, when I say virtually all of the Mueller report, Jack Crow over at National Review reports that top Democrats now have access to all but two full and seven partial lines of Robert Mueller's obstruction report. He says, as congressional Democrats prepare to hold Attorney General William Barr in contempt over his supposed lack of transparency, it's worth remembering he has made available to top Democrats the entirety of volume two of the Mueller report, save for two full and seven partial lines, which were redacted to protect grand jury secrecy in keeping with federal law. In order to provide lawmakers with greater transparency into special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, the Department of Justice placed a less redacted version of his report in a secure room on Capitol Hill and granted access to that room to congressional leaders of both parties, as well as the chairman and ranking members of intelligence and judiciary committees in the House and Senate. As of this writing, not one of the six Democrats granted access to what amounts to 99.9% of volume two of the Mueller report which details the president's behavior as it relates to obstruction of justice, have taken the opportunity to examine it. So just to get this straight, they have now made available to top Democrats the entirety of the Mueller report, with the exception of two full, full lines in 448 pages, two full lines and seven partial lines. Not one Democrat has done this, and they can. They have the option to do so. If they had, they could have viewed the entirety of Mueller's obstruction case against Trump, except for seven redactions, two of which are applied to footnotes. In response to Barr's offer, congressional Democrats have said the full report should be made available to all lawmakers. Why? They won't even look at what's there. Now, the reason they won't look at what's there is because if they look at what's there, then they will have to admit that there really isn't much additionally that is there that is damaging to the president of the United States, undoubtedly. They say the full report should be made available to all lawmakers. They've argued the outcome will become less likely if top congressmen view the less redacted version. So in other words, if they go and see the less redacted version, they're afraid the argument will be taken away from them that Barr is being non-transparent. Well, that's because Barr is, is actually not being non-transparent. He's being quite transparent here. Mark Warner, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, told John McCormick, every member of Congress ought to be able to see that version. I think if I were to go, you'd lessen the case. But Democratic leaders are not asking for that version, which retains the grand jury redactions. They're asking for a fully unredacted report and all of the millions of pages of underlying documentary evidence, which relate to 22 ongoing criminal investigations. Now, as I mentioned yesterday, it is against the law for William Barr to actually comply with this subpoena request. Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 6E prevents the disclosure of grand jury information. Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 6E is not unclear about this. In fact, it's quite clear about this. It says that you are not allowed to reveal all of this stuff. You cannot do that because if you do, you could be exposing to both criticism and censure 
people on the basis of non-evidenced theories that are often put out there in grand jury testimony. According to Rule 6E, secrecy must be the rule of the day. Once a grand jury is summoned, you are not allowed to put out the information that is said in the grand jury summons. You can't do that. So this is, this is ridiculous. Basically, the Democrats, the Congress created Rule 6E. Okay, rule 6E is a, congr- a congressionally created rule. The fact that Democrats are now saying that William Barr should be held in contempt for obeying the law is pretty insane. According to Rule 6E, no obligation of secrecy may be imposed on any person except in accordance with Rule 6E2B. Unless these rules provide otherwise, the following persons must not disclose a matter occurring before the grand jury. A grand juror, an interpreter, a court reporter, an operator of a recording device, a person who transcribes recorded testimony, an attorney for the government. Not allowed to disclose a matter occurring before the grand jury. Disclosure of a grand jury matter may be made only to an attorney for the government for use in performing the attorney's duty. Any government personnel that an attorney for the government considers necessary to assist in performing that attorney's duty to enforce federal criminal law, which does not apply to Congress, or a person authorized by a different section of statute, which does not apply to Congress. There's no question that Barr's interpretation of this rule is correct. Nonetheless, Democrats are attempting to hold him in contempt. For what exactly? Now, as I said yesterday, the Assistant Attorney General, Stephen Boyd, he says, as we've repeatedly explained, the Attorney General could not comply with your subpoena in its current form without violating the law, court rules, and court orders, and without threatening the independence of the Department of Justice's prosecutorial functions. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, faced with Chairman Nadler's blatant abuse of power, and at the Attorney General's request, the President has no option, no other option, than to make a protective assertion of executive privilege. Okay, so there are two issues here. One, is Barr right to redact the material? The answer is yes. Two, is whether executive privilege applies here? The answer there is really no. The answer there is that executive privilege doesn't really apply formally in law, and it's more of a delay tactic because Barr is right about the federal rules, but executive privilege likely does not apply here. As we discussed yesterday, there are two types of executive privilege, deliberative process privilege and communications privilege. Both types of privilege do create a presumption of privilege for the president. That presumption can be overruled by a court, and it's awkward to fit any of this into the privilege box. That's particularly true since William Barr has openly suggested that executive privilege was not declared by the president. So if executive privilege wasn't declared over any of the Mueller report before, it's hard to then put that genie back in the bottle and suggest that executive privilege can be declared now. I mean, William Barr said this. This is back in in April when he first gave his four-page synopsis. Here was William Barr saying the president has not declared executive privilege over all this stuff. Now I guess he's saying that he's going to go back and now declare retroactive executive privilege. I'm not sure that that works. The decision whether to assert executive privilege over any portion of the report rested with the President of the United States. Significant portions of the report contain material over which the President could have asserted privilege. And he would have been well within his rights to do so. Following my March 29th letter, the Office of the White House Counsel requested the opportunity to review the redacted version of the report Following that review, the president confirmed that in the interest of transparency and full disclosure to the American people, he would not assert privilege over the special counsel's report. No material has been redacted based on executive privilege. Okay, so, you know, the fact that that William Barr did not declare executive privilege before means it's very difficult for him to declare executive privilege now. But that's a different question from whether he is doing something that is illegal or, or obstructive. The answer there is no. He is trying to protect himself from violating federal criminal law. And Democrats, of course, have jumped at this. They've manufactured this entire crisis. They couldn't get what they wanted from the Mueller report. So now they are trying to create a presumption of new obstruction. So the Mueller report does not actually result in criminal prosecution of the president of the United States for obstruction of justice. And so Democrats are trying to now suggest, well, there's new obstruction occurring. It's nonsense, but this is what Democrats are going to push forward with. Nancy Pelosi says, you know what? We have to hold William Barr in contempt. For what? Well, because he hasn't given us the material that he's given us that I can look at in conjunction with federal law. Here's Nancy Pelosi making this foolish and dishonest case. Yes, I think that the attorney general should be held in contempt. 
This contempt is about the withholding of the Mueller report in an unredacted way. We all agree that certain things should be redacted. But they were in the course of accommodations, and boom, the uh, administration just said, if you don't, you know, we're going to make this executive privilege. More on the subject than you ever want to know. Yes, should be held in contempt. Okay, so this, of course, is a completely manufactured crisis. Nonetheless, Democrats are looking for a manufactured crisis so they can suggest that Trump is breaking all of the institutional rules. They have this theory. Their theory is that Trump was going to come into government with a wrecking bar, basically, and then he was going to destroy the, he was going to destroy all the institutions of government. That has not happened. Meanwhile, Democrats have declared that the Senate of the United States should be abolished, the Supreme Court should be packed, that we should change all of the voter ID laws, that the Electoral College should be abolished, and that they should be able to override any congressional action with an executive order, effectively. Democrats have declared all of these things, but it's Donald Trump who's a threat to the institutional integrity of the United States. So to build that case, they want to say that right now Trump is engaged in some sort of usurpation of authority that threatens the constitutional structure. As we'll see in a second, this is sheer and absolute nonsense. We'll get to that. But first, we need to talk about how you hire better. Okay, the reality is that you're always trying to make your hiring better. And the only way to do that, really, is to use ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. Today, hiring can be easy. You only have to go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the very first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire, D-A-I-L-Y-W-I-R-E, ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. ZipRecruiter is indeed the smartest way to hire. Go check them out at ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. You can try it out for free. Okay, so Democrats have declared constitutional crisis. Jerry Nadler, who I am old enough to remember when Jerry Nadler was saying that it was not a constitutional crisis when Bill Clinton was overtly obstructing justice. Also, this is the same Jerry Nadler who, who actually walked out on a contempt vote on Eric Holder, who it turned out had not actually turned over all the documents that William Barr has and was not obeying federal rules of criminal law the way that William Barr is. But here is Jerry Nadler saying, no, 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 this is a constitutional crisis, the head of the House Judiciary Committee. We cannot have a government where all the information is in the executive branch, where the American people and the Congress are stonewalled as the information that they need to make decisions uh, and to know what's going on. It's an attack on the, will, on the ability of the American people to know what the executive branch is doing and to have responsible government. It is an attack on the essence of our democracy, and we must uh, oppose this with every fiber of our being. We've talked for a long time about approaching a constitutional crisis. We are now in it. Okay, this is, a, this is an absurdity on top of an absurdity. He's standing there saying that they don't have the information, that they're being blocked from the information. They will not go see the information that has been revealed to them. The entire Mueller report has been made public. Even the parts that are redacted, the vast majority of those redactions are now available to Jerry Nadler personally. And he's standing there claiming that he's being blocked from seeing relevant information. It's just nonsense. But this is what Democrats are going to push out there. And all day on CNN, this is being parroted. Constitutional crisis. Constitutional crisis. You got Sheila Jackson Lee saying the president is taking a wrecking ball to the Constitution of the United States. Sheila Jackson Lee. I can only conclude that the president now seeks to take a wrecking ball through the Constitution of the United States of America. Okay, J Representative Jayapal says this is one of the most serious constitutional moments we've ever faced ever. Ever. One of the most serious. Con really? Um, we've had some pretty serious constitutional moments like FDR trying to pack the Supreme Court or maybe like a civil war in the United States or even Barack Obama attempting to simply go around the law to shape his immigration views. But Jayapal says this is one of the most serious constitutional moments in American history because they have access to a report that they are lying and say they don't have access to. I really think that this is 
one of the most serious, if not the most serious, constitutional moment that we have faced. We are at a deeply disturbing moment in our country's history. The difference between a, a dictatorship and a democracy is that a democracy has checks and balances. If you take away the entire authority and say one branch is not going to respect the authority of the other, then I think we, every American should be deeply concerned. Okay, that last statement is simply hilarious. She says, if you take away the checks and balances by saying that one branch doesn't have to respect the other branch, then we won't have checks and balances anymore. Um, no, a check and a balance is the executive also checking and balancing the legislature. Let's talk about checks and balances for a second. So in Federalist 51, the founders focused on the fact that checks and balances meant there would be gridlock. It meant that government would be messy. It meant that ambition would check ambition. Federalist 51, probably most famous of the Federalist Papers because it has one of the great expressions of, of governmental philosophy in human history. They say ambition, this is Hamilton and Madison, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interests of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the government, the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. In other words, if people were inherently good, you don't need government. If people were inherently bad, there'd be no way to control them. But because people are capable of both good and bad, you need people to check each other. And that is why there are checks and balances. What we are watching here is the proper exercise of those checks and balances. Federalist 51 talks about the fact that the legislature is extraordinarily powerful. But that needs to be checked by the abilities of the executive. They say that you need a powerful executive, an executive powerful enough to be able to check the legislature. The legislature has its own independent investigative powers. So when they say that all of the information in grand jury proceedings pursued by the executive branch should be open in violation of the federal rules of criminal law to the Congress, what they are really doing is manufacturing a crisis and then declaring that President Trump is a dictator for exercising his normal powers. Now, again, ex executive privilege is not properly applied here, but the fact that this is even an issue in the first place is truly ridiculous. Adam Schiff is going around saying, you know, a guy who spent two years proclaiming that he had secret information showing that President Trump was actually a Russian stooge. He's a damned liar, Adam Schiff. Here, here's Adam Schiff going around saying, well, you know, now we're gonna have to prosecute people because of this constitutional crisis. Okay, you go ahead and do that. And then the executive branch won't do anything about it because let's say that Congress held William Barr in criminal contempt. The only way for that to result in a conviction is for the executive branch to prosecute William Barr. Guess who's the head of the Department of Justice? William Barr. So that is a thing that's not going to happen. If Congress wants, they can impeach him. If they impeach William Barr for following the law and giving Congress all the information that he can legally give them, that is an absurdity piled on top of an absurdity. Here's Adam Schiff, a truly dishonest human being. If the administration continues this across the board, refusal to comply with uh, any legal process from the Congress, any oversight by the Congress, uh, then we have no choice uh, that we're gonna have to prosecute this uh, through contempt. We're moving forward in our own committee uh, because we have a, a separate basis for getting all the counterintelligence information in the report and the underlying documents, but they're equally stonewalling us. Okay, so no, that is none, none of that is true. It is hilarious that the media will continue to parrot this nonsense. President Trump is exactly right here when he says that the fake news will say that Trump wants to break the Constitution. He's exactly right. He, he did a rally last night in Florida. Here's one of the things that he said. Those people back there, I call them the fakers, fake news media. They are a bunch of fakers. There's no question about it. But you know, in six years, they're all going to be out of business, folks. Watch, it'll be headlines tomorrow. Donald Trump wants to break constitutionality. Okay, so he is right. That's what the media will do. Now, I will point out, Nancy Pelosi, who is saying that we have to hold William Barr in contempt. Here's what Nancy Pelosi said when Eric Holder, the former attorney general, was held in contempt for failing to turn over 1,300 pages of subpoenaed documents on Fast and Furious. And there was no internal investigation made public to Congress at that time. Here was Nancy Pelosi just a few years ago talking about the vote to hold Attorney General Holder in contempt. What we have seen is a shameful display of abuse of power by the Republicans in the House of Representatives. 
Instead of bringing job-creating creating, uh, legislation to the floor, the transportation bill, uh, they are holding the Attorney General of the United States in contempt of Congress for doing his job. These very same people are holding him in contempt are part of a nationwide scheme to suppress the vote. Okay, that's, that's what's happening here, is that they're going after Eric Holder to suppress the vote or something. I mean, this is a, that's what Nancy Pelosi said years ago about Congress holding an attorney general in contempt. Now, she wants to hold William Barr in contempt for doing nothing. It's amazing. Here's Jay Carney, the former spokesman for the White House under Barack Obama, saying that the attempt to hold Eric Holder in contempt was just political theater. I think the Speaker of the House has made his uh, position pretty uh, clear on this, and it's, it's highly political in nature. What you're hearing from me is, uh, are the views of the President and the White House and the administration that this is a uh, political theater. It is uh, a re you know, unnecessary distraction from the work that Congress should be doing for the American people on the economy, on jobs. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think many Americans, most Americans, will view it that way. Okay, so again, it's hilarious to watch as the Democrats shift their stance on this dramatically in order to go after a guy who is significantly less guilty of anything than Eric Holder, the president's self-described wingman, was at the time. Speaking of crimes that Democrats are willing to ignore, Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York, he came out yesterday and he said that the big problem in this whole, in this whole thing, one of the big problems is that President Trump has embarrassed Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. Those were the paramour FBI agents who were manipulating the process in both the Hillary investigation and the Trump investigation, not according to me, according to the Inspector General of the DOJ, Michael Horowitz. Here's Representative Just uh, Jeffries saying, you know, we really should let Strzok and Page off the hook. So let's get this straight. According to Hakeem Jeffries and folks like him, Democrats, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who openly texted each other about insurance plans against Trump becoming president and about how terrible Trump was while investigating Trump, those people just made mistakes and Trump is mean for embarrassing them. But William Barr, who has handed over all the materials he can legally hand over, he's a bad guy we should impeach. Many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle actually perpetrated a witch hunt as it relates to securing more than 800,000 documents from this very same Department of Justice without regard to the reputational interests of Americans who have served this country. You weren't concerned with the reputational interests of Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. In fact, you embarrassed those two. Okay, so... They made mistakes, but you embarrassed those wow, two. Wow, you embarrassed them. So terrible. I mean, it's very bad to embarrass Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who were effectively fired under, under cloudy circumstances and then condemned by the IG. That's bad, but Eric Holder, uh, but, but rather William Barr, should be held in contempt. Pretty amazing stuff. In a second, we'll get to... The, the latest attempts to railroad President Trump to kind of box him into a corner with more scandal investigations. We'll get to that in a second. First, we're never going to agree on everything, but I think we can all agree that we could use more sleep. Getting a great night's sleep is easier, more affordable than you think. You don't need a new expensive mattress or sleeping pills. You just need to change your sheets. That's why you should check out Bull & Branch. Everything Bull & Branch makes, from bedding to blankets, is made from pure 100% organic cotton. It means they start out super soft. They get even softer over time. You buy directly from them, so you're essentially paying wholesale prices. I know. You think you can just get sheets off the shelf, and you th the thread count will tell you everything you need to know. Not true. What you need are luxury sheets that don't cost luxury prices. And this is where Bull & Branch comes in. These sheets can cost up to a thousand bucks in the store sheets like this. Bull and Branch sheets, just a couple of hundred bucks. Everyone who tries Bull and Branch sheets loves them. That's why they have thousands of five-star views. That, really, I didn't think I'd feel the difference. And then I tried Bull and Branch sheets, and I really do. They are so comfortable. Three former U.S. presidents sleep on Bull and Branch sheets. Shipping is free. You can try them for 30 nights. If you don't love them, send them back for a refund. But you're not going to want to. In fact, they're so good, I got rid of all the other sheets in my house and only have Bull and Branch at this point. To get you started right now, my listeners get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets at bullandbranch.com, promo code Ben. Go to bullandbranch.com today. 50 bucks off your first set of sheets. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code Ben. Bullandbranch.com, promo code Ben. Okay, so meanwhile, the, the attempts to go after President Trump for scandals continues, even though there's really not a lot of evidence of scandal. So, for example, the New York Times today is going after President Trump over his tax returns again. 
This time, based on the New York Times report suggesting he lost a lot of money in the 1980s and early 1990s, the editorial board says, President Trump owes the American people a fuller account of his financial dealings, including the release of his recent tax returns, because politicians should keep their promises, because the public deserves to know whether his policies are lining his pockets, and because the integrity of our system of government requires everyone, particularly the president, to obey the law. Here's the question. The IRS audits people. They do. If they think President Trump is committing a crime, wouldn't the IRS be looking into auditing him? I mean, he says he's under audit. Maybe he's lying. But the IRS has the capacity to prosecute. Tax fraud as a private citizen is still tax fraud. Has there been any indication that Trump has committed a crime here? We keep hearing rumors of crime. But the IRS audits people all the time and then works with the Department of Justice to prosecute people on a regular basis. Apparently, the New York Times just wants his tax returns to humiliate him. We all know, really, why President Trump is not releasing his tax returns. Okay, the real reason President Trump is not releasing his tax returns is because those tax returns are going to say that he is not as rich as he says he is. That's why. Right? It's the reason why he was embarrassed by that story a little bit earlier this week that he lost like a billion dollars in the 80s and early 90s. He's the only one, I think, who cares about this. Maybe the New York Times cares about it, too. I had always assumed he was not worth nearly as much money as he said that he was. I always thought he was lying about his level of wealth. That's what he does. He's a showman. He's a bloviator. He's been doing it on TV for years. He's a guy who gets himself posed on the cover of Playboy. Like, that, that's what Donald Trump is. This is part of the package. You either love the package or you hate the package or you're indifferent to the package and you care about the policies. But the New York Times trying to gin up some sort of scandal by declaring a scandal when there is none is pretty amazing. You remember that Harry Reid did the same thing to Mitt Romney, suggested that Mitt Romney had committed some sort of tax fraud, that he'd never paid any taxes. And then it turned out Mitt Romney had paid a higher effective tax rate than a lot of Americans and was giving a full 10% of everything he made to charity, like millions and millions of dollars. But this is a typical tactic at this point. They say, well, you know, Mr. Trump might hold money in foreign tax havens. Those investments would be listed. What if Trump deducted the interest payments on a loan from his taxable income? He'd be required to disclose information about the source and amount of the loan. So now they're just speculating about what exactly is in his tax returns. Now, I think his tax returns should be released. I like more information about our politicians. I think that's a good thing. But the attempt to speculate about what is in the tax returns, I don't really see the moral difference between this and the push back when Barack Obama was president, suggesting that Obama's reluctance to release his birth certificate meant he was born in Kenya. Speculation on the basis of lack of information is not actually information. It's just speculation. And very often, it's stupid speculation. One thing I think we can fairly clearly say is there is no evidence that Trump has committed a tax crime. It's like, here's the New York Times. This is the editorial board of the New York Times. The returns also could help to clarify whether Mr. Trump continues to cheat on his taxes. We have an entire service. It's called the Internal Revenue Service that does this sort of stuff. It's pr- pretty incredible. But I guess that they, they are sort of relegated to trying to dig up crimes because the Mueller report did not give Democrats precisely what they wanted. Meanwhile, the Senate Intelligence Committee has subpoenaed Donald Trump Jr. According to the Associated Press, the Senate Intelligence Committee has subpoenaed Trump Jr. by calling him in to answer questions about his 2017 testimony to the panel as part of its probe into Russian election interference. That's according to two people familiar with the subpoena who discussed it on condition of anonymity. Unclear if Trump Jr. will comply with the subpoena, A person close to the president's eldest son said Wednesday he has continued to cooperate by producing documents and answering written questions. The person called the new request a public relations stunt and criticized North Carolina Republican Senator Richard Burr for calling Donald Trump Jr. in. The committee had renewed interest in talking to Trump Jr. after Michael Cohen testified earlier this year. Cohen had told the House Committee in February he'd briefed Trump Jr. approximately 10 times about a plan to build a Trump Tower in Moscow before the presidential election. From a lawyerly perspective, Trump Jr. would be a fool to appear in front of the committee again after all of this. Nonetheless, the idea that this is some sort of nefarious action by Richard Burr, I find hard to believe. The Senate Intel Committee has been investigating Russian election interference for the last two years. They're trying to call in a bunch of witnesses as they wind up their own investigation over the next several months. The subpoena does put Burr at odds with some of his Republican colleagues who'd like this to be over after the Mueller report. Rand Paul took a shot at at Senator Burr after the subpoena was reported, tweeting, apparently the Republican chair of the Senate Intel Committee didn't get the memo from the majority leader that this case was closed. I really doubt that that Trump Jr. complies with the subpoena. If they hold him in contempt, he probably figures, okay, whatever. Who exactly cares? Meanwhile, Democrats are, are 
neglecting the fact that Trump is still Trump and that if they want to beat Trump, they're going to have to run against candidate Trump. Now, this would be an epic time for a good Trump, bad Trump episode. I know we haven't had a good Trump, bad Trump episode really since campaign 2016. But as we enter campaign 2020, we're going to have to revive the good Trump, bad Trump axis through which we see the president of the United States. We even had a theme song going back a few years for good Trump, bad Trump, which we'll have to dig up and use in the future. Should have told my producers to do it earlier. In any case, today's episode of good Trump, bad Trump, Trump did a rally in Florida. And at that rally, he said some good things. And at that rally, he said some not good things. And we'll talk about those things coming up in just one second. First, running a small business is a lot of work. It takes time and money. You want all the time and money you have to go toward growing your business. But what happens when legal hurdles pop up along the way? LegalZoom is there to help. Nearly 2 million Americans have used LegalZoom to start their businesses with LLCs, incorporation, and more. But even after your business is set up, LegalZoom can still help you out. Things like lease agreements, changing tax laws, contract reviews, all of these are part of running your own business. These are precisely the kinds of costly hurdles that can take time away from growing your business. That's why LegalZoom created their business legal plan. Get advice for running your business from vetted independent attorneys and tax professionals available in all 50 states. I know, legal is a giant pain in the rear, but this is why LegalZoom is so important. The best part of this, you won't get charged by the hour because LegalZoom is not a law firm. Make your time and money work for you. Check out LegalZoom's business legal plan at LegalZoom.com right now. Get special savings when you enter Ben at checkout. LegalZoom is where life meets legal. LegalZoom.com. I've been using LegalZoom myself for years. Now, as a lawyer, I am constantly looking for ways to save money on legal costs. LegalZoom is one way to do it. Go check out their business legal plan right now at LegalZoom.com and enter code Ben at checkout for special savings. Okay, we're going to get to good Trump, bad Trump in just a second plus. An amazing spectacle as students in Colorado walk out of what turns into a propaganda rally on behalf of gun control after a school shooting. We'll get to all that stuff in just a second. First, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. Go over to dailywire.com. $9.99 a month means you get a subscription. That means two additional hours of me every day. And that we have all sorts of fantastic guests who are on every single day and two additional hours of my analysis as the news develops over the course of the day. So basically, this show is like an all-day show. And you get constant access to it when you go to dailywire.com. Plus, we have our Sunday specials available on Saturday. Plus, we have Daily Wire backstage where you can ask questions. Plus, we have the conversation where you can ask me personally questions. Plus, sometimes, now increasingly rare occasions, but sometimes we answer questions during the breaks of the radio show, all three minutes of those breaks. So you get all sorts of goodies when you become a subscriber. Also, you help us insure ourselves against the vicissitudes of many of our social media betters. You get all that stuff when you become a Daily Wire subscriber. And when you spend 99 bucks a year, you get this. The very greatest in beverage vessels. Behold its glory. The leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler. You get that to show to all of your leftist friends. And then you get to collect their tears in a constant, never-ending supply. Go check all of that out right now. Please subscribe at YouTube and iTunes as well. We always appreciate it. We're the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. All righty, so... Let's talk about this, this Trump rally last night. So at the Trump rally last night, he showed his strength. He showed his weakness. Trump is a man in full. So the president of the United States, he made a good point when it comes to illegal immigration. He said, look, when it comes to illegal immigration, there's someone who takes it seriously, namely me, and then there are Democrats who do not. The Democrats don't want a wall. I do. That's a pretty clear contrast. So now we need Democrats in Congress to work with us to pass an acceptable bill. We're getting close. It's pretty tough dealing with it. They don't want to build a wall, but we're building the wall. They don't want to do a lot of other things. Okay, now, with a crisis on, a on the border that even the Democrats are beginning to acknowledge, the crisis on the border acknowledged openly by the New York Times editorial board, Trump has a leg to stand on right here. And the fact that Democrats continue to, to stymie him when it comes to enforcement of the border is definitely a point against them. And Trump is correct, by the way, that among the Democrats, there are certain candidates who are not exactly going to be imposing to, our, to, to people with whom they negotiate. Pete Buttigieg is the one that, that Trump decides to pick on right here. Now, that is not a rip on Mayor Pete's military experience, which indeed is more than I've done, more than Trump has done, more than most people have done. But it is to pick on his persona, which is that he is going to concede to foreign adversaries when it comes to negotiations because his worldview is in line with that. Here's Trump on Buttigieg, whose image is sort of as, as a European-style uh, European leader. We have a young man, Buttigieg. Buttigieg. They say edge, edge. He's got a great chance. He'll be great. 
He'll be great. Representing us against President Xi of China. That'll be great. That'll be great. I want to be in that room. I want to watch that one. Okay, so Trump's whole shtick is that obviously he's a tough negotiator and he has apparently been holding China's feet to the fire. Yeah, the, Trump on attack like that, there, there's something, Trump has an unerring instinct for sticking the knife in the chinks in people's armor, right? He, he just, he does. It is, it is what he is, is great at. And that is why he is a dangerous candidate. In a binary race, President Trump has a, he's, a, he's like an insult comedian. He's like Triumph, the in, insult comic dog, right? He's really good at tearing people down. So all of that is good Trump when it comes to campaigning. And then there's bad Trump. And my, my estimable produ producers for bad Trump have already found the song I referenced earlier, the good Trump, bad Trump jingle. Let's play it. Good Trump, bad Trump, which one will we get today? Well, the answer was both. So you got President Trump on the trail in Florida promoting his immigration plan. And then you got President Trump doing, this is the problem with being an insult comic. Sometimes you're so eager to play to the crowd that you end up giving credence and credibility to people who do not deserve it. So here's the president last night talking about Border Patrol and talking about how Border Patrol has to treat people humanely. And then somebody says something bad and then President Trump turns it into a joke, sort of. This is not good. Now, again, there are a lot of people today who are going to point out the media are overplaying their hand on this one. That is true. They are overplaying their hand on this one. With that said, is this good? No, it's not. Here's the president of the United States last night. Badly criticized for using the word invasion. It's an invasion. And it's also an invasion of drugs coming in from Mexico, okay? But how do you stop these people? You can't. There's no. That's only in the panhandle you can get away with that statement. Okay, so what happened is how do you stop these people? And somebody shouted, you shoot them. And then Trump jokes, well, only in the panhandle could you get away with that. Well, right before that, that's not in that clip. Right before that, he says, don't forget, we don't let them and we can't let them use weapons. He talks about border agents. We can't. Other countries do. We can't. I would never do that. But how do you stop these people? And then somebody shouted, shoot them. And then he, and then he made a joke. You can only say that in the panhandle. You can only say that in the panhandle. Now, here is the problem. This is another sort of classic example of how President Trump, in his effort to joke or in his effort to avoid in, in his effort to please the crowd in front of him, ends up getting giving credibility to bad positions. And he does this fairly frequently. Like he was speaking to a crowd of cops, I think a couple of years ago, and he started talking about, you know, it'd be great if you could just rough these people up. Obviously you can't, but it'd be great. If it were me, I would just let you rough, rough these guys up in the back of a van. And that's effectively what he said. And he was joking because he was trying to please the crowd. And people said, correctly, you're the president of the United States. You shouldn't be praising people for roughing people up. Right? You, you are not an insult comic, in fact. You're the president of the United States. Well, this one falls under the words of the president of the United States matter, even though we all sort of discount them because we know who he is. So the media, of course, are playing this up all the way, suggesting that President Trump actually is in favor of shooting immigrants, even though he specifically said that he would not do that. He doesn't like that. And then he made a joke to somebody because this is what he does. He makes jokes. So this one falls under bad Trump. Now, I know there are a lot of Trump fans who say, well, it's not bad Trump. That's just people who are deciding to be too serious. People who are deciding to take him too literally. Again, I hold him to the same standard I would hold any other president. I understand. I don't take him as seriously when he does these sorts of things as I would a Barack Obama or a George W. Bush because that's not who he is as a personality. Is it good that the president of the United States is turning shoot, shoot illegal immigrants into a joking line on the campaign trail? No, it's not, even if he is explicitly saying that he is against doing that. And this sort of falls under the same category to a certain extent as sort of the Charlottesville second take, right? Originally, Donald Trump's take on Charlottesville was that he condemned everybody. He said there was, there was all sorts of bad stuff happening on all sides. That was his original take, and he didn't specifically single out white supremacists. And then in his revised take, he said, I condemn fully the neo-Nazis, I condemn fully the white supremacists, but there were people who were marching who were good people because there were good people on both sides. Unnecessary, pandering to a crowd, a mistake. Okay, so th that's the problem with good Trump, bad Trump. So Trump pleases the crowd in front of him, sometimes at the expense of the crowd beyond the camera. And this is going to give Democrats some room to run when he really did not have to do so. So this is, the, this is what Democrat, Democrats have some material to work with when it comes to President Trump. Obviously, the fact that they're focusing in on scandal suggests they don't think that he's quite as vulnerable as they say that he, as they say they believe he is, which is kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing. All right, meanwhile... 
in a, in a terrible story, obviously, over the last couple of days. There was a school shooting that happened in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. According to the New York Times, last month is the 20th anniversary of the Columbine High School shooting approached. STEM school Highlands Ranch joined hundreds of schools near Denver and closing temporarily amid security concerns. But on Tuesday afternoon, the STEM school's worst fears were realized when nine of its students were shot, one fatally, two fellow students were being held as suspects. We know two individuals walked into the STEM school, got deep inside the school, engaged students in two separate locations, according to Sheriff Tony Spurlock of Douglas County. At 6.45 p.m., about five hours after the shooting, the Douglas County Sheriff's Office released a statement confirming that one of the nine who had been shot, an 18-year-old man, had died. Late Tuesday night, the Sheriff's Office identified one of the suspects, but said it would provide no further information about him. I don't mention the name of mass shooters on the show because, quote, we still have interviews to conduct and we want to make sure we have the most accurate information. So obviously, another horrific mass shooting at a school. Apparently, handguns were used in the shooting. And apparently the person responsible, at least one of the two suspects responsible, is a person who leaned politically left. The reason I mention this is because the media always make it about the politics of the suspect as opposed to the evil of the suspect. Apparently, this person had said on social media that he hated Christians specifically for their teachings on homosexuality. And apparently he hated President Trump as well. He shared video of Seth Meyers. I doubt we're going to get a lot of talk about Seth Meyers inciting violence. Um, but apparently this is what this, this human piece of debris did. And now, all of this broke out into the open yesterday, not just because of the shooting, but because of the reaction to the shooting. So the reaction to the shooting was pretty amazing. Naturally, the left immediately made it about gun control because whenever there is a mass shooting that is carried out not by a white supremacist, then it's about gun control. So if a white supremacist commits a mass shooting, it's about the evils of conservatism, which is conflated with white supremacy in the left mind. And when it is a school shooting committed by somebody who is not a white supremacist, then it's not about ideology or incitement at all. Then it becomes about guns. Well, what this resulted in last night was there was a candlelight vigil. And one of the people who showed up to the candlelight vigil was an activist for Moms Demand Action. And Democratic Democratic Senator Michael Bennett and Democratic Congressman Jason Crow addressed the crowd. And they started calling for gun control. And many of the kids walked out. Now, here's one of the women who was speaking. She was from Moms Demand Action and calling for gun control. We became paralyzed by the NRA. We did not hold our elected officials accountable as they were loosening the sensible gun regulations that were keeping us safe. Instead, we chose to burden our youth with the responsibility of saving their own lives. We forced all of you to learn in an environment that's more closely resembling a prison than a school. None of this is right. We robbed you of your innocence. Okay, so she did all of this. This is this woman from Moms Demand Action. And a bunch of the students said, um, no, you're not going to use our grief as a platform for your political agenda. And so they walked out. So here is some, here's some video and audio of them walking out of the auditorium. And as you'll hear, they, they start chanting mental health because apparently this person had a mental health history. Here's all the students leaving. They're saying, listen, we're not doing this. Good for the students. Good for the students. Because this sort of stuff is used as a platform all too often not to look, not to look at the actual problems involved in this specific shooting, but to look at problems that the left would like to place on the shoulders of a fact pattern that doesn't actually obtain. And one of the students said, what happened at STEM is awful, but it's not a statistic. We can't be used as a reason for gun control. We're people, not a statement. Speaking of the lone fatality, 18-year-old Kendrick Castillo who apparently was a hero who charged one of the gunmen. Another student added, we wanted Kendrick to be mourned. We wanted all of you to join us in that morning, but that was not allowed here. We all walked out. We were not kicked out. The vigil was organized by Team Enough, which was the student branch of gun control group, the Brady Campaign. The kids chanted mental health, and they yelled at the media because the media, frankly, deserve it. The students returned. Some of them took the microphone, saying their grief was being used for political purposes. Good for them. Good for them. Because as I say, the media always have narratives that they want to draw from these shootings. And invariably, those narratives are narratives they have been pushing in the absence of the shooting. So if there's a shooting that involves handguns, it turns into a discussion about banning assault weapons. And if there's a shooting that's really about the mental health of the suspect, then it turns into a discussion about gun control. And if it's a shooting that is about, that is about white supremacism, then they talk about the ideology and not the guns. So it's always a shifting, it's always a shifting mode. It's always a shifting mode. And it's pretty 
great of the students to have the intellectual wherewithal and the intestinal fortitude to walk out of something like this and say, listen, if we're going to hold a vigil, let's hold a vigil. If we're going to be in solidarity, let's be in solidarity. But I'm not going to allow politicians to carve us up based on political, political considerations. And Nicholas Kristof was doing exactly that in the pages of the New York Times today. He has a piece today titled, We Have Two Dead Young Heroes. It's time to stand up to guns. He says, politicians fearful of the National Rifle Association have allowed the gun lobby to run amok so that America now has more guns than people. But there is still true heroism out there in the face of gun violence, students who rush shooters at the risk of their own lives. Let's celebrate and mourn a student named Kendrick Castillo, 18, just days away from graduating that STEM academy. According to another student, Kendrick lunged at him. He shot Kendrick, giving all of us enough time to get underneath our desks, to get ourselves safe, and to run across the room to escape. At least three boys in the class, one of them Brendan Bialy, who hopes to become a Marine, tackled and disarmed the gunman. Bravo as well to the police officers who arrived within two minutes of the shooting. The courage of those students echoes last week's bravery of Riley Howell, a student at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Riley, 21, charged a gunman there and continued even as he was shot twice. As he tackled the gunman, he was shot a third time in the head and killed, but he ended the shooting. Riley was was deservedly given a hero's funeral. Presumably the same will happen with Kendrick, but their parents didn't want martyrs. They wanted children and grandchildren. It is appalling that we as a society have abandoned American kids so that we must die to save their classmates. So this is, the, this is, again, just the general gun control argument. No, no attempt to get in touch with the families, by the way, of these heroes and ask how they felt about gun control or the students who were under fire and ask how they felt about gun control or even to look at the actual studies on gun control and see whether gun control would be effective in stopping mass shootings like this. The generalized answer is no. Nonetheless, the left pushes for this sort of stuff. And, you know, as somebody who in the last several weeks has been the victim of at least of some death threats bad enough that it ended with an FBI arrest. All I can say is that our proper solution was to up security and for me to carry a gun as much as I legally can. And I think that there should be more armed officers in these schools, but good for, again, good on the students for doing the right thing and, and not caving to the media push. And by the way, it is a media push. You know, it says that the, some of the students were yelling at the media. Maybe they were yelling at the media because you got dolts like Chris Cuomo who are, who are, basically using their platforms as quote-unquote objective journalists to push gun control. Here's Chris Cuomo on CNN being very objective and very journalismic. Here he is. These conversations, you've, how many have you heard? How many families like that? We're going to have an argument for you tonight that shouldn't have to be made 20 years after Columbine, and we all know it, but we've got to face the reality. That's what these moments call for, if nothing else. Can't run. You've got to be like Riley. You've got to be like Kendrick. You've got to run at the problem. You got to run at the problem. The way to run at the problem is obviously to do exactly what Chris Cuomo says you should do politically at the federal level. By the way, we should recall Columbine that he is mentioning there, 1999. You know, it was in place at that time. The federal assault weapons ban from 1994 to 2004 didn't stop Columbine. So there's that. Okay, time for some things I like and then some time for then time for some things that I hate. So things that I like. So this is a thing that I quasi like. Uh, There is a film on Netflix called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. Zac Efron stars as Ted Bundy. The only issue with this film, really, is that it's not about Ted Bundy. So it's like, if you heard it was a movie about Ted Bundy, you figured that what it would be is about the the sociopathy of Ted Bundy, his actual crimes, the victims of the crimes, how the police tracked him down and all of that. It is not about any of those things. Virtually the entire movie begins with Ted Bundy. It basically begins with Ted Bundy's arrest. And the movie isn't really about Ted Bundy. It's about Ted Bundy's girlfriend, who's the one who initially called the police on him and then was convinced by Ted Bundy that he wasn't really guilty of all these things. The movie, if you have the proper expectation of the movie, it's good. The movie is really not about him. The movie is really about how if you want to be misled by the people around you, you certainly can. If you take it from that angle, the movie's good. If you take it as some sort of biopic of Ted Bundy or some sort of serious look at Ted Bundy's crimes, that it obviously is not. Zac Efron is very good in the part, by the way. He's a really underrated actor. Here, here is the, here's the preview. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you have been witness to the unspeakable horrors of the defendant's heinous crimes. You have seen ghastly injuries, smashed in faces, broken jaws. Will the defendant please rise? For years, I've carried this guilt that I'm to blame for everything. (laughs) If only I hadn't trusted you. Promise you'll never leave me, Liz. It's about another missing girl, isn't it? Ted, 
hit you. The problem with the preview is that the preview makes it sound like it's actually going to be about Ted Bundy's crimes. The movie is not about Ted Bundy's crimes. It's about how people around him accept Ted Bundy's crimes. So that is, that's an interesting movie, but it's not really being pitched well. So I think you're going to see people disappointed in what actually is a pretty good movie. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Okay, things that I hate. So a bunch of things that I hate that are just insanely stupid. So the, the first thing that is insanely stupid today, there's an article in Vice about how medical textbooks overwhelmingly use pictures of young white men. Okay, now, my wife, as many people know, is a doctor. In fact, you can buy a t-shirt with that slogan on it from our Daily Wire store over at Amazon. But the fact is that doctors do not rely on the pictures in the textbooks when it comes to diagnosing illness. They look at the bodies in front of them. And in fact, doctors work with bodies in front of them all the time. They work in medical school with cadavers. Those cadavers are rarely of young, white, slim, fit males because those people don't die all that often. <laughs> Usually it's an older person or a person who is fatter, a person with a health problem. And then I remember my wife coming home and telling me about all of this. I mean, you gotta carve through them. That's your actual experience with the bodies, not the pictures in the textbooks. Textbooks are just supposed to show you where things are, basically. But according to Vice, this is very, very bad. And they say that it's these pictures in the textbooks that are leading to racial bias in medical care. Or alternatively, that's not really what is happening here. The editors of Human Anatomy, the textbook with parody, are Lane Marriage and Katja Hone, both women. The textbook with the worst ratio was edited solely by men. What we need now is gender parody in the editing of medical textbooks because we have to show bodies that are diverse. Why? Because apparently doctors are too stupid to understand that bodies are diverse. According to the Vice article, in some cases, showing a female body makes sense if the content is specifically about female health. But according to this new study, even in cases where there is no reason to show one sex over another, men are more likely to be depicted as the normal body. This lines up with previous research from 1992 that found that even when it comes to medical imagery around reproduction, men outnumbered women in textbooks 2.5 to 1. Okay, well, if there's no difference between this part of the medical anatomy, why do you care whether a man is being shown or a woman? If, if, if you're looking up where the appendix is, it's in the same place in men and women. So why does it matter? Why are you so concerned about this? Man, if, you, if you're pissed off at medical textbooks, let me suggest that you, you, need, to, you need to get a life. I mean, really need to get a life. But speaking of gender parity, the, the kind of in-house joke at the New York Times among opinion columnists is Farhad Manju, who has a piece called The Next President Should Not Be a Man. He says, according to pollsters and political reporters, a dispiriting dynamic has taken hold of the early stages of the Democratic presidential primary. Voters are discounting female candidates as unelectable. Or alternatively, you've provided us a bunch of crappy candidates. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that Elizabeth Warren is uncharming, Kamala Harris is a woke scold, and Kirsten Gillibrand is a joke. Maybe it's that. But according to Farhad Manju, it is the innate sexism of the American people. Dave Weigel of the Washington Post says something similar. He says, to understand Bidenmentum, you've got to have some of the conversations I had yesterday. Middle-aged women explaining that 2016 showed that voters won't elect a female president, so they've got to be strategic. Or alternatively, you could have run a not crappy candidate. Farhad Manju says, emotionally, such reticence makes sense. Hillary Clinton's loss to a cartoon misogynist left an enduring wound. Three years later, the memory feels like a flashing danger sign, a warning that however some, much some may want it, this country is simply not ready to elect a woman as president. Again, maybe they're not ready to elect your woman as president. If Nikki Haley were on the Republican ticket today, she would be the odds-on favorite to win the presidency. Farhad Manju says, Democrats, for your own sake and the sake of our nation, I beseech you, drive away such useless thoughts. Overlooking a qualified woman because you expect misogynists to have a problem with her is the very definition of patriarchy. You are abdicating the voting booth to the enemies of equality and are perpetuating the dynamic that has given us 45 male presidents in a row. Well, actually, the dynamic that gave us 45 male presidents in a row was that it was only men voting for the vast majority of American history, or at least half of American history. He says, that's not all. In the 2020 cycle, something else is at play. Today, doubting a candidate's electability because she's a woman isn't just unfair. It's exactly backward. This year, it's the men whose electability you should doubt. So apparently, you must select a woman. Gender politics are at the core of all politics, says Farhad Manju. Reawakened feminism should turn reflexive bias on its head. The women who are running this year are broadly qualified to occupy the White House. Really? Senator Warren has been in the Senate for basically one term. Kamala Harris has been in there for five minutes. Kirsten Gillibrand, again, is a joke. 
says they've won statewide races. They've survived brutal primaries. They've advanced novel and pathbreaking public policy ideas. Yes, yeah, so novel, so, so pathbreaking. I mean, like the actual typical Democratic Party agenda for the last 50 years or radical leftism. He says, common sense tells us electing a woman as president would deal a smashing symbolic blow to the patriarchy. I am so tired of this. So tired of this. Symbolic blows to the patriarchy. You're, you're right. You know, having two having a secretary of state who was a black woman and Condoleezza Rice. I remember when the media didn't care about that. They only cared that Hillary Clinton was secretary of state. Having a vice, president, vice presidential candidate who was a woman in Sarah Palin was mocked by the left. Elizabeth Dole ran for president in 2000 as a Republican. The left didn't care about that. Seems they only care about quote unquote misogyny when it's a Democratic woman they want to see elected. Okay, final thing that I hate. So this is just hilarious. Chris Hughes, who was the roommate of Mark Zuckerberg and made hundreds of millions of dollars because he was Mark Zuckerberg's roommate. He lucked into a bunch of money because he was an early investor in Facebook as Mark Zuckerberg's roommate in college. He did nothing to earn that money, by the way, other than be an early investor. Good on him. He then bought the New Republic and proceeded to run it directly into the ground. Now he wants Facebook broken up. So the company that made him all the money and that he doesn't run, he wants it broken up now after it made him all his money. How convenient. He's ruined one company. Why not ruin another? Now, I am not an advocate of breaking up Facebook. I don't think that it's an actual monopoly. It doesn't have market. It doesn't have any sort of regulatory capture involved. I'm in favor of determining whether Facebook is in fact a publisher or a or a platform. That's not the same thing as using antitrust law in inappropriate ways. I think antitrust law, quote unquote, breaking up monopolies is far too often overapplied. For more on that, you can read a book by Robert Bork about antitrust. I think it's called The Antitrust Paradox from the 1970s. It is still relevant. Chris Hughes, this, this fool, writes, the last time I saw Mark Zuckerberg was in the summer of 2017, several months before the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. We met at Facebook's Menlo Park, California office and drove to his house in a quiet, leafy neighborhood. We spent an hour or two together while his toddler daughter cruised around. We talked politics mostly, a little about Facebook, a bit about our families. When the shadows grew long, I had to head out. I hugged his wife, Priscilla, and said goodbye to Mark. Since then, Mark's personal reputation and the reputation of Facebook have taken a nosedive. It's been 15 years since I co-founded Facebook at Harvard, and I haven't worked at the company in a decade, but I feel a sense of anger and responsibility. Oh, or alternatively, you really did nothing at Facebook, and Mark Zuckerberg ran the whole thing, and then you made a lot of money off his back, and now you're being ungrateful, and you want to break it up for virtue signaling purposes. And then he talks about his beautiful relationship with Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I want to break up Mark's company. Mark is a good, kind person, says Chris Hughes, but I'm angry that his focus on growth led him to sacrifice security and civility for clicks. I'm disappointed in myself and the early Facebook team for not thinking more about how the newsfeed algorithm could change our culture, influence elections, and empower nationalist leaders. Right, this is really what, what he wants, is to restrict the ability to disseminate speech on Facebook. Just like all good little leftists, Chris Hughes would like to see Facebook become a repository of his ideas and his ideas alone. The government, says Chris Hughes, must hold Mark accountable. For too long, lawmakers have marveled at Facebook's explosive growth and overlooked their responsibility to ensure that Americans are protected and markets are competitive. Facebook's offer to appoint a privacy czar is not enough, neither is a $5 billion fine. He says, we may need to rein him. It's time to break up Facebook. We need, already have the tools. We need to check the domination of Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I know there are a bunch of people on the right who don't like Facebook, and so they are happy to do anything that they can do to break up Facebook or hurt Facebook. I am not anti-Facebook. I'm anti how Facebook has applied its own standards. And that's why I think that we should determine whether, in fact, Mark Zuckerberg wants to be an editor-in-chief the way I am at Daily Wire or whether he wants to be the head of a platform. But the fact that Chris Hughes is saying this, I think is a good indicator we should not do that. And by the way, maybe we should open up Chris Hughes to liability. I mean, he was apparently a very important person at the company in its formative stages. So if they're really bad, maybe he had something to do with that. It's, I'm so tired of the virtue signaling from people who make money off people who didn't, again, Chris Hughes lucked into this stuff. He's getting hit right and left for this, and he should be. I mean, he was literally the guy who was randomly assigned to Zuckerberg's freshman dorm. <laughs> Facebook co-founder. All righty. Well, we'll be back here a little bit later for two additional hours of the Ben Shapiro Show, so stick around for that, or we'll see you here tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is the Ben Shapiro Show. This is the Ben Shapiro Show. 
Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright, Daily Wire 2019. Hey, everybody, it's Andrew Clavin, host of The Andrew Clavin Show. So now the Democrats are going to put on a show. It's the impeachment and constitutional crisis show, except without a real impeachment or a real constitutional crisis, because they need a show to replace the reality they've lost. That's on The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm Andrew Clavin. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 